Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Kat Arney. Hello, and in the show this week, how ovaries become genetically damaged with age, why a brisk power walk could generate electricity, and what is coronavirus? We'll discover more about this contagious infection and find out why it's making headlines. Thanks, Kat. Also this week, we will be tugging on your scientific heartstrings to celebrate the science of love. Is chemistry, romantic chemistry, really just a chemical reaction? We will also discover how a simple brain switch dictates how a fly will behave during mating and we'll ask if humans are meant for monogamy. So if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientists, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or just find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Now, first of all, joining Kat and me to take a look at the science news this week is science journalist Mark Peplow, Laurie Winkless from the National Physical Laboratory, Dan Cleary, Deputy News Editor for Science Magazine, and Laura Howes from Chemistry World. Thank you all for joining us. It's a very full studio today. <laughs> now, Kat, <laughs> Kat, what have you got for us first? Well, this is, a, I guess, a kind of romantic story. It's it's to do with babies, well, it's to do with eggs, which are kind of pre-babies, I guess. But it is a, a sad fact that a woman's egg cells don't last forever and we do eventually lose our fertility and women are born with over a million potential egg cells in our own bodies but only 500 of these turn into mature eggs and sadly they're almost all gone by the time a woman reaches her early 50s but this happens at very different ages for different women suggesting that there's a hefty genetic component in the mechanisms that drive our biological clocks and now new research published in Science Translational Medicine this week shows that the age-related decline in the quality and quantity of a woman's eggs may be linked to problems with a vital DNA repair pathway involving a couple of rather infamous genes. That's BRCA1 and BRCA2. We've talked about those before on the show. They're breast cancer genes, aren't they? So what are they they up to in in an ovary? Well, the breast cancer genes, the BRCA genes, normally help cells to repair DNA damage throughout the body and they're a really powerful way of helping to prevent cancer. This explains why people with faulty BRCA genes are at a greater risk of breast, ovarian and prostate cancers. But also as we age, these repair mechanisms get less efficient and damaged cells accumulate. Now, the lead researcher of this work, this is Cutluck Octe at New York Medical College, noticed that women with faulty BRCA genes coming to his fertility clinic tended to produce fewer egg cells. So he wondered if these repair mechanisms might also be at play in the way that egg cells degrade over time. So how did they then link that back to the DNA repair? Well, they started by looking in mouse and human eggs for DNA damage, specifically these are the double-stranded breaks that are usually repaired by the BRCA genes. Now, they found that this kind of damage piled up in the egg cells with age, suggesting it's no longer being repaired properly. Now, they then tested whether it was actually the BRCA genes playing a role here by knocking down the levels of the genes using a technique called RNA interference, and they found that there was even more damage than usual. Then they did it the other way round. They engineered mouse egg cells with extra amounts of BRCA1 and found that older eggs with an extra dose of BRCA1 could survive DNA damage just as well as eggs from younger mice. As always with these experiments, there is then quite a big leap into real women out there in the real world. Do, do we think it's going to hold up? Well, to confirm that these findings do hold up, the researchers looked at the ovaries of young women with faults in their BRCA genes. They found that women with faults in BRCA1 had smaller reserves of egg cells in 
in their ovaries, while mice with faulty BRCA1 had smaller litters than genetically normal animals. And although both humans and mice with faulty BRCA2 genes seem to have no fertility problems, the scientists think that the effects of this gene might actually come into play later in life. So what does that mean for women who who talk about their their body clock and time running out, people who might be worried that they aren't going to be as fertile as they get a bit older? Well, it's important to stress that at the moment, the scientists haven't yet directly linked faulty BRCA genes to fertility problems. But this paper has opened up a whole new avenue of research in this area. And once the researchers have pinned down what's going on at a cellular level, they do hope to find ways to slow down age-related loss of fertility. Thank you very much, Kat. Very interesting story. Mark? We're looking at synthetic biology with you. What? Tell me a bit more about this. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I've got a story in this week's edition of Nature, which is really a milestone in the battle against malaria, but it's also a milestone for the science of synthetic biology. Now, this involves adding a genetic code to a living organism to get it to do something useful that it wouldn't or- ordinarily do. In this case, it's about engineering a yeast with an extra dozen or so genes uh, to produce a precursor to a malaria drug. Seven years ago, Jake Keesling, uh, who's a biochemist at the University of California in Berkeley, showed that you could genetically engineer yeast to do this. Um, fast forward to a conference uh, a couple of weeks ago in Nairobi, Keesling found out that for the first time, uh, Sanofi, which is a big pharmaceutical company, has used this process to make 39 tonnes of artemisinic acid, which is a precursor to the, the grade A best available malaria treatment out there. That's not an insignificant amount of material that they've made there. It's huge. You could convert (laughs) it to about 40 million treatments, something like that. Uh, So that might be between 20 and 30% of of the total number of treatments that are dispensed in a year. How does that compare to more traditional drug manufacture techniques? Well, this is the interesting thing about this. At the moment, the only source of artemisinin uh, therapies, which are the, the different types of molecules all based on this stuff that are used in the drugs. The only source of it is uh, is the sweet wormwood plant, Artemisia annua, which is grown in places like China and Vietnam. And the fact that this, the only source of this drug comes from this plant has caused the market to be incredibly volatile for these uh, drug compounds. The prices have fluctuated massively, supply has fluctuated massively, and it's partly because it, it, from growing the plant to producing the drug is an 18-month cycle. Adding erratic donor funding um, and it's made it very difficult to actually predict drug production. This uh, new uh, synthetic biology derived form of the drug, the idea is that this will kind of smooth out those bumps in uh, in production of the drug. Are we sure as well that it's it's identical, it's chemically identical to the drug that they would have made with their normal factory process? Well, it is, and at the moment, all the, dos- the dossier of information um, is in with the World Health Organization so that they can verify that that's the case, but it should be within months that they sign off on that. So it's feasible that we could expect to see malaria medicines made using this process in pharmacies in the developing world by the end of the year. In theory, this is the kind of technique that should be able to work for all sorts of other drugs that 
that are derived originally from natural compounds as well. In theory, that's right, Kat. This is something that people working in synthetic biology, this is, is one of the key things you can do. If you, if you can uh, find a, uh, a, a microbe uh, to make your drug, rather than going through many, many different chemical reactions to make it, potentially you can, you can make it more quickly and, and more easily. One of the interesting things about this, though, is that the, uh, the yeast, the engineered yeast, uh, gets you so far, but it still requires four steps of, of good old traditional chemistry to actually take you onto the drug. So they, they have to work hand in hand. Uh, drug companies are often a bit shy of spending a lot of money developing things for diseases like malaria. Mm. Are they going to make the effort of, with this one? Well, uh, one of the reasons that Sanofi did this, um, funnily enough, I, uh, everybody that I spoke to about this story um, was quite happy to talk to me about this. Sanofi was a little harder to pin down, and, and that's strange because you know they're doing an amazing thing uh, that, that could help millions of people. Uh, it's interesting, a lot of the money to come up with the development of, of the process has come from charitable funding from like the Gates Foundation and places like that. And one of the motivations for them, as well as looking good, that's, that's a clear motivation that they're very upfront about, it makes them look good. It potentially stabilises a market that they already feed into because Sanofi is one of the drug producers that buys in sweet wormwood or processed sweet wormwood plants to turn into the drug. And it's hit by market fluctuations just like everybody else. So it's looking for a way to stabilise that. But the other thing is, you know, they've been given uh, several million dollars by donor funders to develop a really neat bit of chemistry and a, a really neat bit of uh, production-level synthetic biology that they could then apply to other more commercially lucrative drugs. So for them, the interest is in being able to, you know, get some effectively free support um, to develop new in-house technology, which is then theirs. That's their proprietary technology now. Thank you very much, Mark. Dan, seeing as you have put your head above the parapet, <laughs> okay. what have you got for us this week? Um, well, I'm talking about cosmic rays. This is a 100-year-long mystery of where they come from. Uh, they're not really rays, as in a ray of light at all. They're particles, uh, mostly just protons, which is a part of every nucleus. And they come raining down on the Earth all the time. We don't notice them because the atmosphere stops them before they get down to us. But... Uh, they're coming all the time, and they come from all directions equally. And astronomers have been puzzled because they don't know where they're coming from. They, it just seems to be equal from all directions. The reason they don't appear to come from anywhere is because they're charged particles moving through space, so they get their path through th space is twisted by magnetic fields. So you can't trace back the route it's taken to get here. So they could have come from anywhere. The other thing about them is they're very high energy. They're traveling almost at the speed of light. So they must have come from some violent event in the distant, in deep space. So astronomers learned about uh, a bit more about particle physics in recent decades and realized that these particles, if they have a sort of glancing collision with another proton in, that's just floating around in space, it'll produce a gamma ray. Now, a gamma ray is a ray. It's a high-energy photon, and it'll, you know, a gamma ray will just go straight through space and it'll tell you where that event took place. So they have the advantage of not being bent by magnetic fields. They might be bent a bit by mass, but not by magnetic fields. Exactly. So if you found a place in space where a lot of these gamma rays are coming from, 
that's a good bet that this is a place where uh, cosmic rays are being accelerated and created. So they looked around in space for things that do that, that produce these gamma rays, and the prime candidate were supernova remnants. So these are the material that's left over from a star that's exploded at the end of its life. So it's a load of material that's just flying outwards in a big sphere from a dead star. Well, not a dead star, but an old star. And um, sure enough, there were gamma rays there, so that was the sign that it was producing cosmic rays. The problem was other things could also produce those cosmic rays. Electrons are also accelerated by a supernova remnant, so it could be electrons. So they had to find some way of distinguishing between the gamma rays that were coming from the electrons and the gamma rays that were coming from the protons. Along comes the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope, which was put up into orbit in 2008. And it is more discriminating. It can study the energy spectrum of the uh, gamma rays in much more detail. And this big team announced uh, this week in uh, Science magazine that they were able to distinguish between the uh, the electron gamma rays and the proton gamma rays. And sure enough, the proton ones were there. So they're saying that they've solved this mystery, that uh, supernova remnants are the source of at least some of the uh, cosmic rays that are raining down on us. So just by looking at the, the spectrum, now, now I guess we could compare this to looking at light, where... When we see a certain spectrum, we know that that light has been emitted by a certain compound. Yep. And we're now seeing the same sorts of things with cosmic rays, and that's giving us a clue as to where they're actually coming from. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They produce the gamma rays by this very unusual process. When they make this collision and with a, a more stationary nucleus, they produce a particle called a pion. And pions don't last very long. They just, in almost in a fraction of a second, they split into two gamma rays. But because you go through this process of producing a pion first, you know your gamma rays have to have the energy of at least half a pion. So there's an energy cutoff in the spectrum of uh, gamma rays that are produced in this way. So they saw that cutoff, and so they can say that it was protons. So if, if these really energetic protons, if they're coming from a supernova remnant, were they all accelerated during the process of the supernova, of a star exploding? Or is there something there that's, that's still accelerating them now? Yes, that's one of the things they want to go on and study. When is the most um, active time in mm. uh, the evolution of a supernova remnant for producing cosmic rays? But it isn't a one-off event. As this um, sphere of material is expanding outwards, it creates a shock wave in front of it as it pushes against the interstellar medium, the gas that's just permeating all of space. And it's this shock wave that is the natural particle accelerator. Protons get caught in this uh, shock wave and bounced back and forth, gaining more and more energy until they've got enough to shoot off into space as a cosmic ray. Thank you very much, Dan. Now, sticking with physics and, in fact, sticking with energy, we're also joined by Laurie Winkless from the National Physical Laboratory this week. Laurie, what have you got for us? I found this really interesting paper, Ben. Um, it's from a group at Georgia Tech in the US and the Beijing Institute of Nanoenergy. And they've actually developed a generator that can convert your footsteps into electrical power. And the way that they, they do this is 
Well, when you walk across the floor, you might think that your footprints are just propelling you forward, but you're actually losing quite a lot of kinetic energy into the floor. Now, there have been efforts to harvest these vibrations uh, using piezoelectric energy harvesters previously. But what these guys done have done is actually quite different. They've developed a triboelectric nanogenerator that can produce large amounts of power outputs from a single human step. What do we mean by triboelectric? So triboelectric is basically uh, charging that happens as a result of friction. So if you take a plastic comb and brush it through your hair, you build up surface charges on your hair and on the comb. So these guys have basically taken that effect and they've produced a polymer and gold sandwich, as it were. So the top layer is made of two polymers, PMMA and PDMS, and they have a little thin layer of gold in between. And the bottom layer is coated in gold nanoparticles. So when you step on these uh, layers, you actually bring these surfaces into contact and you build up a surface charge. So that is obviously a way to extract energy from a system. But is it actually worth doing? Are we going to extract enough energy from people walking past to actually do anything useful? Well, the pretty clever thing about this paper is that the use of gold nanoparticles has massively amplified the amount of charge transfer that you can get in this kind of system. And to demonstrate the actual power of this effect, uh, these guys led by Zhang Wang uh, produced a nanogenerator about the same size as your PAM. So quite small, but pretty big in terms of nanotechnology standards. And they connected it to um, a bank of LEDs and asked their staff to step on it, basically. And they actually managed to produce, with a single step on this nanogenerator, they produced enough power to power 600 LEDs. So the thing that strikes me about this paper is um, you call it the triboelectric effect, but we also call this static electricity. It seems to me that the big thing isn't necessarily getting electricity from walking. As you said, people have been doing this before, but it's actually the fact that we're taking static electricity, the thing that makes my hair stick up on end and makes my jumper crackle when I pull it off, and turning that from something where it's just a charge to something that could actually power electrical equipment. Yes, uh, basically. So when when these sandwich layers uh, join together, as you said, you build up a surface charge, you build up static electricity and electrons flow from the gold into the polymer. And when you then, so this is when you've stepped on the generator. If you then lift your foot off the generator, you separate those charges and you produce a voltage, basically a potential difference. And that actually drives electrons through the system, which you can then tap off as current electricity. So what's going to be the next stage then? How are we going to start scaling this up and and how do we hope to actually be able to deploy it? Well, I mean, personally, I have this vision of the disco dance floors from Saturday Night Fever being powered by those boogieing on the surface. Uh, That's what I would like to see happening. Um, But these particular guys are interested in in basically uh, harvesting energy in urban areas. So maybe in train stations, maybe you could could gain enough power from footfall to maybe open the gates or even just as an aesthetic addition to an urban landscape, having individual paving stones that light up as you walk on them. Thank you very much, Laurie. Um, no problem. Now, Laura, we're talking about energy, talking about power. You have what seems like a very unusual way to power a robot. Yeah, so uh, if we start thinking about robots, we often thought, think about mechanical objects often made of metal. Um, but quite a lot of people are starting to look at what they call soft robotics. So these are robots often made of things like silicone. So they're much squishier. If you think about the world, we are quite squishy. If you want to pick up something that's delicate, that's quite squishy. It's a ni- nice, neat idea. But how do you power them? People have been looking at powering them through different ways. But I think 
exploding methane gas is a particularly uh, novel approach. <laughs> so how did it work? What this group have done um, at Harvard University, and it's uh, led by an incredible scientist called George Whiteside, who does a lot of work on low-cost, low-energy applications, of, of technology um, is they've moulded out of actually a commercial silicone. So if you think of, we use silicone for all sorts of things, including cookware. I have silicone moulds for making cakes. Yeah, I've got a spatula as well that I use to make sure I get every last drop of sauce out of the saucepan. Yeah, for exactly. So these things are sort of bendable and stretchable. And they've done quite a lot of work in making small robots that can crawl along the ground by filling up tubes in the silicone with air and then it expands a little bit and so it crawls forward very, very slowly. But that's very, very slowly. The huge leap was done by um, Robert Shepard in George's group who actually thought, well, my car is powered by explosions. If you think about what powers your car, there's petrol and there's oxygen and there's a spark and then there's huge amounts of gas created that expands and drives the engine. And it turns out that if you use a particular type of, of, of silicone, um, then it's it's tough enough to hold the expanding gas of a very small amount of methane. We should say it's a, it's a very small amount of methane that they're using. Um, and they've made a small, it's a three-legged robot, so it looks a little bit like a, a starfish maybe that's got three legs and each leg is hollow and has a wire going down it and a tube that can take down some oxygen and some methane. It also has a wire to create a spark. And then as the gas expands, it sort of flips its legs and leaps into the air. And the robot is about a centimetre high, and they know that it can leap at least 30 times its height. That's pretty significant then, but can they control the jump? It sounds like the sort of thing that might fling itself into the air, but actually getting it to land in the right place might be a bit more tricky. Sure. I mean, that's that's an issue. Um, at the moment, there isn't so much control. That's the thing they're looking at next, is how do they engineer the legs perhaps to control the jump how do how does it change as they reduce the amount of methane they put in and explode because obviously you can make it jump less how do you put the direction in uh, when i was talking to robert about this as well he said that one of the things they're looking at is maybe tying up the exploding leaping motion with the crawling edging along motion so perhaps they could tie up the two together and how do they see these sorts of robots actually being used well, um, this is DARPA-funded research. So this is, um, in the States, is funded um, for various sort of defence purposes. And actually one of the things that they are really looking at is one day having these soft little robots that can leap over a broken bombed house or, you know, a house that suffered from an earthquake and then crawl underneath. So it's looking at search and rescue operations. And the, the reason why they're looking at using these sort of robots as opposed to the more traditional type is that it's much cheaper and easier to make. They've just got some silicon they've bought from an internet you know, distributor and then they've moulded it. So there's minimal work, there's minimal things to go wrong. And if it breaks, if they lose it, it's not the end of the world. You know what I reckon they should use it for, right? So what makes methane? Cows. <laughs> what needs milking? Cows. You could make, like, self-milking cow robots. That'd be genius. That's an amazing mental stretch. <laughs> <laughs> 
thank you very much to Laura. Also, thank you to Mark Peplow, Laurie Winkless and Dan Cleary. And just quickly, a new story that I've spotted is that psychoactive drugs, such as the anti-anxiety drug oxazepam, can get into rivers in biologically relevant concentrations. And this may actually be altering the way that fish behave. This was research published in the journal Science this week. Now, many pharmaceuticals are known to make their way into wild waterways. Once they're excreted by a medicated human, they then travel through water treatment plants and can remain stable in effluent for quite some time. Little is known about the effect of this pharmaceutical pollution. Any directly toxic effects would be easy to identify, but actually when these chemicals are designed to affect a behavioural change, things like antidepressants or mood-altering drugs, then the impact might be a bit more subtle. So Dr Thomas Broden and his colleagues at Umea University in Sweden noted that the concentration of a certain anti-anxiety drug, oxazepam, in river water was around 0.58 micrograms per litre. But it was actually concentrated up to six times higher in the muscle of the European perch that lived in the river. So could this, they asked, alter the behaviour of the fish? And to find out, they looked at three behavioural traits, that's boldness, activity and sociality in both treated and untreated fish. And these traits are known to have an impact on population dynamics and so could be relevant for both the ecology and the evolution of the fish themselves. They found that fish exposed to the drugs were more active, they were more likely to explore new areas and they were more of a loner, they were less sociable. And the extent to which these behaviours were demonstrated mapped onto the dosage. So the higher the concentration of the drug in the water, the more significant these behavioural changes became. And what's more, as a result of these changes, the behaviourally modified fish ate more food and so could deplete a food source more quickly. And that suggests that the presence of these anti-anxiety medications in rivers might actually alter food web structures and ecologically change waterways in very hard-to-predict ways. Now, beyond the ecological concerns that we have in general, some people have asked if fish could be concentrating medications that then get into the human food chain. Luckily not, as I asked co-author Jonathan Clamender, and he said that a human would need to eat around 4,000 kilograms of fish in order to receive a dose equivalent to one pill. And because the half-life of oxazepam in humans is about 12 to 14 hours, that means you'd have to pack in a lot of fish in just one meal. And that's all for the news this week. As always, you can find references and more about all of the stories that we've discussed on our website at thenakedscientists.com. This is The Naked Scientists with Kat Arney and with me, Ben Valsler. If you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments, then you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or find us on Facebook. Now, still to come, is love just a chemical reaction? And are humans meant for monogamy? But first, a new and deadly strain of virus thought to have originated from contact with infected animals in the Middle East is raising concerns as evidence mounts that it can also pass from human to human. To find out more, we are joined by Professor Wendy Barclay, who is Chair in Influenza Virology at Imperial College London. Wendy, thank you ever so much for joining us. First of all, what is this virus? Well, this virus is a coronavirus. That's a virus in quite a large family that includes viruses of both humans and animals. The the name suggests that it's got a special appearance. It's got some spike-like proteins on the outside, which uh, under the electron microscope look a little bit like crowns, hence the corona. 
and uh, the virus is carrying inside an RNA genome, um, which of course we know makes viruses a little bit more mutable than, than viruses which rely on DNA for their genome. And coronaviruses are quite notorious in the RNA genomed viruses as being extremely large. They have really the largest RNA genome of, of maybe up to 30 kilobases in length, which, which is large for a single piece of RNA. Until sort of around about 2002-2003, the only coronaviruses that people knew about that infected human beings were two rather mild coronaviruses that caused common colds. And then, of course, along in 2003 came SARS coronavirus, which uh, hit the scene and made everybody sit up and realize that, that these coronaviruses could also cause much more serious disease. And, and that, again, seems to be what we're seeing here this time around as well. So how does this coronavirus and this particular strain differ from other respiratory infections like influenza? Well, in many ways, there are some, some similar features, uh, particularly with severe forms of influenza, for example, the H5N1 bird flu, when it does infect humans, causes a very severe um, lung uh, involvement, viral pneumonia, severe respiratory illness. And that seems to be so far what's being seen in these uh, 11 people now that appear to have been infected with the new coronavirus. So there are some similarities there. In, indeed, it could be said really that SARS was also a, a virus which causes a sort of very much a lower respiratory tract, respiratory infection. That differs, I guess, from you know, typical common colds and most strains of seasonal flu, which although there can be lung involvement, really are uh, also infecting the upper respiratory tract and passing amongst people quite readily through the air. You said we've had 11 confirmed cases of this so far, so it obviously is a, quite a new strain. Where do we think it's actually come from? So genome sequencing suggests that this is really highly related to viruses which are found in bats. And again, since the SARS epidemic, a lot of work has been done on, on coronaviruses and looking for new viruses because we think that SARS, in fact, came originally from bats, although it seems that SARS went through other animals first to sort of adapt and allow it to cross that species barrier and get into humans. This virus actually seems much more similar to viruses which are in bats, uh, suggesting that it may not have gone through an intermediate animal species but may have come directly across from bats into humans. But to be honest, the, the source, the animal source of the infections, which most have, most have originated in Saudi Arabia, the animal source of these infections really is not identified. And this has been making the headlines primarily because it seems to have been able to go not just from bats to humans, but actually from one infected human to another. Why is that such a concern? Well, when we have these viruses that are usually present in animals and they cross once into an exposed person, we call that a zoonosis. And although that's very unfortunate for the infected person, because often that, that's accompanied by severe disease, it doesn't necessarily trigger an outbreak. A lot of animal viruses can, following a, a big dose exposure, can cause this zoonotic event. But when we get really worried is when there are new viruses which cross from an animal species and they have the capability to pass from one person to another. Now, I should stress that although you know, the, this new coronavirus has hit the headlines because it appears to have done that, 
the case of human to human transmission which we're certain about is in a family member following what we think is quite close contact and in fact the recipient that the, the person that seems to have caught the, the virus from a family member is themselves somewhat susceptible to viruses we don't know the, the medical details but we, we are understood that, that, that they have some predisposition to make them particularly susceptible. So this human-to-human -human transmission event that's been seen with the new coronavirus does not necessarily mean that this virus has the ability to transmit readily from people through the air in a manner which we would begin to think was heralding a new pandemic. And obviously we, we do have to be careful not to alarm people. How can the medical community now be vigilant and what are we looking out for before we know that we may need to take action? Well, the signs of this virus are pretty severe. We're talking about severe respiratory illness. Some of the patients have, have experienced kidney failure as well, but it's not clear whether that's a direct consequence of virus infection or whether it's associated with the multi-organ failure that goes with such a severe respiratory infection. There are, um, I mean, obviously the Health Protection Agency is looking at this very seriously. They're very much involved. They have diagnostic tests available, and I'm quite sure that, that um, clinicians involved in sort of caring in ITUs for these kinds of patients will be strongly encouraged to, to submit those diagnostic tests and confirm cases as soon as possible. Many thanks, Wendy. That is Professor Wendy Barclay from Imperial College London. And now it's time for this week's Planet Earth. As a clean, renewable source of energy, algae is great in theory. It not only takes in CO2, but some species produce useful quantities of lipids or fats, which can be converted into biofuels. But scientists have hit a snag. How do you actually extract these useful chemicals? Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham met microbial ecologist Simon Thomas at the Plymouth Marine Laboratory. We're in a constant temperature room at the moment, so this is actually set at 15 degrees C, and we are surrounded by bottles of algae growing gently in the light and also some larger volumes of algae. We have 10 litres of various algae, so we have a column, as you can see, which is bubbling air through it in front of a light source, and that's the very basic of what we do. It looks like an oversized fluorescent tube full of this green liquid, and it's bubbling from the bottom up to the top, and that's a particular type of algae? Uh, the one in there is actually Dunanella salina. It's of commercial interest because it produces beta-carotene at certain stages of its life cycle. The bubbles are there to keep it moving, but they're also there to help gas exchange, so it gets oxygen out and CO2 in. And these you, you describe as photobioreactors. So, so what is a photobioreactor? It's the algal equivalent of a fermenter. So in a fermenter, technology is very old, and it grows commercial-scale amounts of bacteria, or yeast typically, these are an attempt to take that technology onto algae and it's to add a certain degree of control that's very hard to do in an open pond system. And ultimately you're looking at, at products from these, but you're looking at how to get those products out. We are, yes. For any future development of biodiesel from algae, one of the most important things is to try and get the product out. But also for the other applications of algae, pharmaceutical uses cosmetic uses, you still need to get the products out of the cell. Typically they're produced within a cell and breaking the cell open is very difficult with algae. They're very resistant to distress. So we're trying to find some novel ways of breaking them apart. One of the ways we're looking at is using viruses that infect the algae and they naturally break the cells apart. We're looking at novel mixing technologies which use things like beads impregnated with metals and enzymes from bacteria that would naturally break apart algae. 
So we're very much going back to nature in order to find a way of trying to solve this problem. It's quite tricky, and it's taking an awful lot of time, and an awful lot of people are looking at this at the moment. But we have some success. Uh, if you imagine an individual microscopic algal cell, so what, that's a single plant cell, effectively. Okay. How much of that is oil, and how much oil can you breed for it to, to, to produce? Normally, you would say something like 10 15% would be oil, but um, we've developed some strains of algae that produce up to 40% lipids. And what we're trying to do is normally they would only accumulate these lipids late on in their life cycle. And we're trying to get them to actually produce this oil early on whilst they're actively growing. But, of course, there will always be a balance between growth and storage material. So we're trying to solve that particular conundrum. So you've got one of these columns just under, what, two metres high, full of algae. A sizable percentage of that is lipid. It's potentially oil, but getting it out is the challenge. Well, the scary thing, and one of these columns here would only be about one gram of oil. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So one of the challenges for the future is actually scaling up these systems to meet the massive demand there would be. But even in a a very good system in 10 litres, you'd be lucky if you got more than two or three grams of oil. So you need to come up with a very large solution or maybe find a way to grow even denser, which is, again, something we're looking at. Now, if we go out of, of this room into the, uh, the main laboratory here, you have scaled this up. So this is a, a fairly big room. And at its centre is almost another room, which is full of these tubes running horizontally rather than vertically. Basically, you split the volume of the tube into a manifold. And the idea is trying to maximise the amount of light that the algae gets whilst minimising the amount of time they're spent before the oxygen's removed. So when oxygen gets too high for a photosynthetic organism, it becomes toxic. It's a balance between exposure to light and the amount of CO2 they take up and the amount of oxygen they produce. So this has been designed in collaboration with a big engineering firm, and we worked out the formula based on their experimental design, and we come up with this particular design. Is that continuously replenishing or is it the algae just sort of sitting there and doing its thing? The algae actually flow through the tubes and the idea is you get turbulent flow in the tubes so the algae actually go from the middle to the outside and it maximises their exposure to light and it also maximises their ability to get rid of the unwanted gases and take up CO2. That's Simon Thomas at the Plymouth Marine Laboratory on the challenges of producing biofuels from algae. He was talking to Richard Hollingham, and you can hear a longer version of that interview on the Planet Earth podcast. Just follow the link on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash planet earth. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and with Kat Arney. And this week we are exploring the science of love. We, <laughs> <laughs> you've got to say it like that. We talk about having chemistry with another person. But is the feeling of love really just a chemical reaction? We're joined by Dr Alex Kogan from Cambridge University and Professor Gert Terhorst from the University Medical Centre in Groningen. So Alex, to start off, in your scientific opinion, what is love? Other than a headache, you mean? <laughs> I think other than a, a major headache for many people. Um, it's a really timeless question. You know, people have been wondering about this uh, particular question probably since the beginning of humanity. I think my best hack at the answer would be to say that it's quite a few motivations. It's emotions. It's behavior. Uh, I would say love is some of the best stuff in your life and some of the worst stuff in your life. And so it's got a lot of complexities. When we think about different types of love, we've got everything from friendship love to love of a romantic partner to love of cheesecake. And that makes studying love extremely difficult. And so as a 
this new era of studying love from a neuroscience and genetic perspective starts to really emerge. We're trying to work out all these details and complexities. So forgetting the kind of love of cheesecake, which I really do understand. Um, when we talk about uh, romantic love, the kind of love that yeah. you know, is celebrated with Valentine's Day, yeah. what do we know so far about what's going on in the brain? There's been a few studies done on this, and uh, the work is really preliminary, I would say. But what we know is uh, when we look at our romantic partner, for example, as compared to a stranger, we t- do see more activation in the dopaminogenic uh, component of the brain where a lot of the wor- reward aspects are processed. So we know that aspect. But beyond that, I think we're still trying to learn some of the details because of the methodological and design challenges of capturing something as loose and complex as love. And we hear a lot in the media, the media loves to talk about this hormone called oxytocin. Yes. <laughs> it's the love molecule, it's the cuddle hormone. Yes. Uh, really? <laughs> I would say not really, to be honest. And so what's interesting about oxytocin is we see it across the animal kingdom. It's pretty ancient. By the best guesses, I think we've it's been around for at least 700 million years. And so a lot of the work that started out on oxytocin was first in animals. And what they found was when they administered uh, oxytocin, to rats, for example, to mothers who hadn't uh, given birth, they started showing a lot of maternal tendencies. And when they restricted oxytocin, uh, even the, the rats that had given birth started to act a lot more coolly to the children. So that was a big indicator of maybe maternal love. And then with uh, prairie voles, for example, they found that, hey, they have much more of this distribution of the oxytocin receptor network, which seems to be regulating the monogamy, whereas with other species of voles, you don't see the same distribution and you don't see monogamy. So then we move on to the human work, and there's been some evidence that it's linked to things like trust and empathy and love. But in the last couple of years, we're starting to discover the dark side of oxytocin, and we're seeing things like it promotes more jealousy and greed and potentially envy and gloating and so on and so forth. So I think it's a very complex molecule that does a lot, uh, and we're really starting to just learn about it. I want to bring in a hurt here as well, because love isn't just about these kind of feelings of, of closeness and trust or even these kind of evil, dark feelings. Um, love is very pleasurable and not, not just sexually pleasurable. Being in love is, is nice. We know from other studies that chemicals like dopamine are involved in these feelings of pleasure. Um, does the same apply to love? I would say it does, but we only have indirect evidence for a role of dopamine in, in love. When we study the MRI scans that are made, we do see activation of regions that contain a lot of dopamine, but that's only indirect evidence. What you actually would like to do is study the uh, role of dopamine, for example, with PET scanners. And as far as I know, that hasn't been done. They're not very romantic being in a PET scanner, though. No, it's not. Uh, and, and also in being in an MRI scanner is not very romantic. It's a lot of noise. Do we know about any other chemicals in the brain that might also be involved in these kind of pleasurable feelings of falling in love? Now, I think there's, there's some idea about the role for serotonin, for example. We know that serotonin is critical for mood. And when you're in a, in a happy mood, when you're in love, I would say serotonin particularly must be involved. But also that is indirect evidence because... As far as I know, not many studies have been done on the neurochemistry of love, not in humans anyway. So thanks, Hurt. We'll come back to Alex and Hurt shortly to find out how love survives after this initial chemical rush. 
But first, it is really difficult to try and unpick the circuitry that exists behind what's going on in the complex human brain. But Johnny Cole, a postgraduate student at the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, better known as the MRC-LMB, has spent the last three years looking in a far simpler system, and that's the brain of a fruit fly. He's been busy trying to uncover what's going on in their brains when they get into mating season. Naked scientist Hannah Critchlow finds out more. I'm interested in um, differences between the male and the female brain because if you look at, at animals, in most species, males and females behave quite differently. And now our big challenge is to explain at the level of neural circuits, so at the level of how individual nerve cells in the brain wire up into circuits, to explain those differences at this level. Yeah. And what animal are you looking at? We're studying the fruit fly brain just because the human brain is a lot, lot more complex than the fly brain. So fly brains have about a million times fewer nerve cells, so they're a lot easier to study than the incredibly complex human brain. And also in flies, we have very powerful genetic tools to monitor, to activate or inactivate single cells in the behaving fly. And you mentioned that you're looking at behaviours between males and females in the fly. What kind of behaviours are different? So we are looking at innate behaviours. So those are behaviours that flies don't have to learn. So they're just being born with the knowledge of how to perform this behaviour. And specifically we're looking at one type of behaviour, courtship behaviour. So male flies, they will try to approach the female fly. So they start following the female fly around. Then they'll try to sing a love song for the female fly. So they try to serenade the female fly. Then they will try to lick and touch the female fly and eventually try to copulate with the female fly. And during all that time, female flies respond quite subtly to those uh, courtship attempts by either becoming docile and they let the male do its thing, or if they're not impressed by the male courtship attempts, they will just kick the male in the face, literally. And what's controlling these different behaviours then? So that's specifically what we're trying to find out. So we know that there's one type of chemical signal, a so-called pheromone, it's called CVA, is controlling courtship behaviour. This chemical signal leads to completely different behaviours in males and females. So when males smell this pheromone, CVA, they increase their aggressiveness and they are in general repelled by CVA, whereas females increase their receptivity when they smell this chemical signal. And that's quite interesting because there you have the same physical stimulus, CVA, that leads to completely different outcomes behaviorally in males and females. And that's what we're looking at. And it's usually the males that emit this pheromone, this chemical CVA. Exactly. And so what brain differences have you found between the males and the females that give rise to these different responses then? So for the last three years, I, I've been recording electrical activity from single nerve cells in the fly brain when we present this pheromone to the living fly. After many of those recordings, I found that there's different responses to that pheromone in brain centers that process the smell. So basically, the pheromone CVA uh, is detected by the fly's antenna. That's the olfactory organ of the fly. And there it activates the first nerve cell. This nerve cell then talks to a second nerve cell. And the second nerve cell then talks to a third nerve cell. And that's the basic circuitry for pheromone perception in the fly brain. 
and I'm now recording activity from the third nerve cell. And this simple three-nerve cell circuit is there in both male and female flies. Exactly. So the first two nerve cells are identical in males and females, but I found at the level of the third nerve cell there is a difference between males and females. So if you take the analogy of a train on rail tracks, so imagine that the pheromone signal is the train and the rail tracks are the cables with which the nerve cells in this, in this circuit communicate. In both sexes, the train on the rail tracks goes past the first station, so the first nerve cell on the antenna. It goes past the second nerve cell, deeper in the brain. But then at the level of the third nerve cell, something different happens. It can go either left or right. So in female flies, the train would turn left and go to one part of the fly brain. In male flies, the train would turn right and go to a different part of the fly brain. And we've identified now that there's a, a circuit switch at the level of the third nerve cell that tells the train to go either left in females or right in males. And do you know what that signal switch is? What's controlling whether it goes left or right? Yes, we found that surprisingly, this switch is controlled by a single gene. It's called fruitless. This gene occurs in a male and a female version. And we found that when we engineer female flies that have the male version of this gene, the switch is set in a male manner. And then what happens to these female flies with this different switch? So these she-males, as, as we call them, they start behaving like males. So when they smell the pheromone, they would get on their hind legs and start boxing. So they, they display male-typical aggressive behaviour. Do you think there's a similar system in humans? That's a long-standing question. So many people are interested in whether humans can actually perceive pheromones. The problem is that the human brain is very, very complex and it's hard to study those, those kind of questions in, in, in people. So we know that the human brain has the anatomical potential to perceive pheromones, but as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been a conclusive proof of the existence of human pheromones. So at the moment, we just don't know, but it, it would be very interesting to find that out. And you're now coming to the end of your PhD. Do you want to stay in research, do you think? Absolutely. I, I'm planning to do a postdoc and I will potentially want to investigate whether the same mechanism is in operation in, in more complex brains. Well, it makes you glad that humans don't have the same courtship rituals as flies. <laughs> uh, no licking, singing songs or getting kicked in the face. That was Johnny Cole, who will be soon completing his PhD at the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge. And this is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Kat Arney. Now, we've just heard that falling in love invokes a cocktail of quite poorly understood chemicals that cascade through your brain. But what happens once that initial rush has worn off? We're still joined by Alex Kogan and Hurt Terhorst. So Alex, how does a reaction to these chemicals change over time? Great question. Poorly understood, I would say. You know, there's uh, only a handful of studies that have really been done in terms of humans and studying love in terms of the scanner. I'm not really aware of much work in terms of oxytocin, looking at levels as they track. We do know that, you know, the course of love does peak in terms of the early phase, in terms of this manic, I want to be with you all the time phase, and then cools off. We go from this great state of passion to more companionate love as it rolls on, and it becomes more tender and more about connection and commitment. But the neuroscience were quite a ways from really understanding because of the, all the challenges that are involved in trying to study topics like this. Gert, do you have any idea about how the this, this rose-tinted vision that we have during what we call, quite rightly, the honeymoon period, how does that seem to affect the pathways in our brain? 
how it affects our pathways, I don't know. But what <laughs> we've done currently is we are measuring using uh, pupil dilation to see how long this period actually lasts. And pupil dilation is a measure of our emotions. Uh, what we do is we show people a picture of their partner and then we, we study them over time. And what we've seen, that it probably lasts for something like 10 months. Is that all? That does not seem like a very long time, hey, I'll it? take it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and as, as sad as this may be to bring up, but what happens at, at the end of a relationship? We, heartbreak can feel like a, like a physical illness. It really hits you hard. Do we know what's going on chemically during that period? Uh, what chemically is going on, I don't know. But we've just completed an MRI scan for approximately 100 people who've gone through breaking up of a relationship. And what we see is a big difference between men and women. In, in women, for example, we find a lot of inhibition in the brain when uh, they are confronted with a photograph of their ex-partner, which is significantly less in men. What we also see is that women suffer greatly from heartbreak, really at the beginning, and after six months, this is, is wears off. And in men, we see the opposite. They start rather happy after a breakup, but they end up in a serious breakup problem after about six months. Do you know how that also maps on to maybe the different roles of being the breakup her and the breakup e? Because you could imagine the person that's doing the breaking up initially feels relief. They're, they're great. You know, I got out of this relationship I wasn't happy about. And they have that initial boom. And then later on, they realize, well, wait, there were all these wonderful things I had that are now gone. Whereas for the breakup e, they get hit with the misery right away. But maybe they could start the healing process a little earlier. Yes, we, we also studied that aspect. But since we have not yet completed the study mm. and we, we are running the final analysis right now, I cannot really discuss this yet. Mm. Well, on a more positive note, do we know what changes occur that, that help people to stay together? Do we see particular patterns of brain activity in couples who've been together for a very long time? I, I suppose there's some evidence from animal models where, again, the prairie voles, uh, in terms of distribution of, say, the vasopressin network or the oxytocin network. So we could say those systems are likely involved, but the work with humans is early. You know, the, the first studies really with humans with oxytocin didn't really begin until the 2000s, I would say, on really yeah. picking up with nasal sprays. And so I think we're still really trying to figure out the what, what happens in the moment, and we haven't really started to touch on a lot of these more interesting longitudinal, longitudinal effects. It seems yeah. surprising to me that something that has concerned mankind for right. all eternity yeah. is something that we've only recently started studying. It's funny you mention that because pre-1970s, there was really almost no research in psychology on love. Uh, Zick Rubin was one of the pioneers who started the work. And uh, during his dissertation, they said, well, why are you studying this? Nobody's done it. He said, well, keep the, no, the lip review very short. And now it's much longer because there's been a lot more work done. But it's, it's so complex. A lot of the work is often, well, we need to narrow the scope, not study love of everything, which will include cheesecake. But I'll, we'll study just the you know passionate love, which is a very particular type of romantic love, or companionate love, or unconditional love, and it's just it's one of the most complex topics that we know of. 
And we have to do longitudinal studies yeah. as well yeah. to follow people. Yeah. Because that has not been done yet. Not at all. <laughs> and just quickly, Hurt, we, we were talking about dopamine earlier. We know that dopamine, as well as being involved in reward, is very frequently evolved in addiction. Do we think it's possible that long-term relationships may just be a case of being addicted to each other? <laughs> This, this has been stun, uh, studied in one MRI study in uh, the U.S. where they mm. showed that people who were still in love after 25 years and heavily in love, so they claimed they were as much in love as they when they just met, in these people they, they have a pattern of brain activity that resembles addiction. So it could be. So it really could be that we are just simply addicted to one another. I think that's quite a nice way to end. And, of course, Robert Palmer said that we're going to have to face it. We're addicted to love. That was Alex Kogan from Cambridge University and get to Horst from the University of Groningen. Now, this week with love in the air, Hannah Critchlow wonders whether humans are biologically driven to have one partner or more. This week, we question everlasting love. Hello, Naked Scientist. This is Michael from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. With divorce rates being over 50%, is monogamy for humans a natural need, which is nature, or a societal concern, which would be nurture? So many other species have multiple partners, but are humans meant for monogamy? Hi, this is Larry Young, professor of psychiatry at Emory University in Atlanta. Most people would define monogamy as a long-lasting, sexually exclusive partnership between mates. But in reality, this sexual monogamy is very rare in animals. When biologists speak of monogamy, they generally are referring to social monogamy, where a pair form a long-lasting relationship, but there is occasional cheating. Prairie voles, beavers, marmosets, and 90% of bird species are socially monogamous. Rats, mice, cats, and deer are examples of species that mate promiscuously. I believe that humans have the capacity for monogamy, which is not true for 95% of mammals. Our brains evolve the ability to form enduring bonds that results in socially monogamous relationships that last well beyond the initial sex. The neural mechanisms that give us the capacity to form bonds do so by creating the emotion that we call love. Monogamy evolves in situations where it takes two to raise offspring or where the likelihood of finding a partner is low. Humans have a long dependency on parental resources, and it is likely that pair bonding evolved to ensure that the offspring are provided with the resources needed to succeed. However, I do not believe that humans are biologically sexually monogamous. In most species that biologists consider monogamous, there is also cheating. Cheating can increase fitness by increasing the number of offspring for males or by diversifying the genetics of the offspring for females. So it seems monogamy may help with the time and resource-consuming task of child-rearing in humans. There are also occasional dalliances with this behaviour possibly driven by the requirement to increase genetic diversity for future generations. And these sentiments were echoed by people on the forum. Next up, we wander the super senses of flies. Desiri Deverne Will from Johannesburg, South Africa, wrote in with this. Apparently, a blue fly can smell meat from seven kilometres away. Is this true? Thanks. So, do blue flies have super-smell senses of specifically seven kilometres? And if so, how? And what experimentation has told us this? What do you think? You can post on our Naked Scientists Facebook page. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Or you can join in the live debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. And that's our Super Sense stinker of a question for next week.
But that's it for this week. Thanks to our guests, Wendy Barclay from Imperial College London, Dr Alexander Kogan from Cambridge University, Professor Hert de Horst from the University Medical Centre at Groningen, and of course the esteemed news panel that you heard at the start of the show. Many thanks to Kat Arney for joining me this week, and production this week was by Hannah Critchlow and Chris Smith. Next time, we are going in search of the super-sensitive. We are crossing the animal kingdom looking for unique and interesting sensory strategies. We'll meet the moles that have unique ground vibration hearing, and we'll hear how bees see the world differently. This is The Naked Scientists. I'm Ben Valsler, and thank you very much for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.